Welcome to Back from the Abyss, where we bring you stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. Today, I'm doing a mini episode on ketamine. If you've already listened to a few of our episodes, you've heard ketamine mentioned a number of times. I see ketamine as one of the fastest and most effective ways to pull patients out of a depressive abyss. So today, I'm going to answer seven of the most common questions about ketamine. Here we go. Number one, what is ketamine? Well, ketamine is a lot of things. Number one, it's an old drug that has found a new use. It's been around almost half a century. It's widely used around the world as a general anesthetic. But interestingly, like a lot of other medications, it's been repurposed for something else. And in the last few years, ketamine has swept through psychiatry as potentially one of the most powerful and exciting new treatments for depression in a long, long time. Many psychiatrists, myself included, would argue that the last generally safe and effective, and that's very important, safe and effective, antidepressant to come on the market was lamotrigine or lamictal in 1994. And there's been a lot of meds that have come on the market since that time. But with increasing efficacy, we see a lot of potentially awful side effects. Question number two, how does ketamine work? Who knows? (laughs) And really, how does any psychiatric drug work? I mean, to be honest, the level of understanding that we have right now in psychiatry would be sort of like if you said, well, how does a car work? And someone said, oh, here's how a car works. You sit in the front seat, you put the key in the ignition, you turn it on, you put it into gear, and then you push the accelerator and you drive. And that's how a car works. And then really that's kind of where we are with a lot of our understanding of psychiatric drugs right now. But that said, we do know some about ketamine. We know it works on glutamate, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain. We know it seems to modify opioid receptors, and it may work on the metabolic waste system of the brain, and it works on G proteins, and it takes the default mode network offline, and it seems to enhance synaptic connections. But what I tell my patients, and I think metaphors are actually at least given where we are in psychiatry right now, I think metaphors are a powerful way to talk to patients. I tell my patients that ketamine is essentially a soft reset of the brain, a control-alt-delete, a power-cleansing, if you will. It's not a happy pill, because the reality is that most people leaving their ketamine sessions feel fairly discombobulated and don't necessarily feel better depression-wise, But when ketamine works, which seems to be at least 70 to 75% of the time with treatment-resistant depression, patients describe waking up the next day, or sometimes two days later, and they feel lighter, they feel more peaceful, they feel less burdened, more able to face their life and do what they need to do. They're not necessarily happy, whatever that word means, but they're clearer, lighter, more hopeful, they're able to engage in their life. They're able to walk the dog, to go to the grocery store, to do what they need to do. It's as if a lot of lead weight were cut off or the dark cobwebs had been blown out of their brain. Another really interesting thing about ketamine is it doesn't seem to necessarily replace daily medications, but it seems to help them work better. 
I've been able to get some of my patients off some of their depression meds. But in general, yeah, it seems like an augmentation treatment. Again, a deep cleansing or, you know, as I explained to my patients, it's almost like your brain is running way too many programs and it's just stuck and you have that spinning wheel of death. And you just can't get the sludgy hard drive to work. And ketamine is this control delete that just closes down 15 programs and lets the thing run smoothly and gives you some respite. Okay. Question number three, who responds best to ketamine? Well, number one, and this is an exciting, a thrilling thing for me as a psychiatrist, is ketamine seems to work best the deeper in the hole you are the more profoundly buried in the abyss you are with depression, the more potent it tends to be, the more effective it tends to be. I tend to think of depression as coming in two types, if you will. Depression with insomnia and depression with hypersomnia or oversleeping, or what I call black bear depression. Ketamine seems especially powerful and effective for people with the hypersomnia or the oversleeping, or what's often called bipolar depression. There's some indication that people who respond to lamotrigine, lamictal, may do better on ketamine. And for sure, we're seeing that people who have more depression than anxiety, and again, those are often very linked together. I think of depression and anxiety like peanut butter and jelly. Like They often go together, but they're different. But people who have a predominantly depressive picture tend to do much better with ketamine treatment. Question number four. What is the ketamine experience like? Well, some of you know that ketamine is not only a general anesthetic, but it's also a club drug, which to me is very curious and interesting because having done hundreds and hundreds of sessions now with people, uh, most of them say the same thing, which is, whoa, I can't imagine taking this recreationally. What most of them say, in fact, what I would say 100% of my patients say is ketamine is weird, very, very weird. Now, for some people, the experience is spiritual. For some, it's euphoric. For some, it's scary. For some, it's just weird. Well, I would say everyone agrees on very, very, very weird. Because the thing is, ketamine is a dissociative drug. And by that, I mean, it takes your consciousness offline. And it does that in a very unusual and sequential way. For example, it seems to first take your body offline, and then it starts to take your visual sensations offline, and then your ego, and only later does your sense of hearing and eventually your sense of being a conscious person disappear. Your body awareness and time and ego all fade away and you enter a sort of ketamine dimension or matrix. Now, we found that the best way to help make the ketamine experience manageable and even powerfully moving is to use eye shades and music and headphones. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about the last thing going offline is hearing. Because even as people go deep in the dissociative ketamine experience, sound is very important. And the grounding experience of having music and headphones helps people feel safe and held and in general I think makes the experience not just more manageable but even more profoundly moving. Question five, what's the best way to do ketamine treatments? Like in the rest of medicine, 
it seems that dose really matters. Now, a lot of people get hung up on, should you do your ketamine intravenously or intramuscularly or intranasally or sublingually? But I think what's becoming more and more clear with those of us who do a lot of ketamine treatment is that the key feature is the depth of the dissociation. The deeper people go in the ketamine experience, the more fully they lose their ego, their body, and their contextual awareness, the more likely they are to get depressive symptom benefit and resolution of suicidal symptoms. It's very difficult to get fully dissociative states from sublingual or intranasal ketamine, which is why those don't seem to be that effective for treatment-resistant depression. But with both IV intravenous and IM intramuscular, it's actually very easy to get people to full dissociation. And I think that's why we're seeing much more powerful results with those. In, in terms of the question, intravenous versus intramuscular, there's no clear data on this. It seems the main predictive factor is how fully dissociated people get, how deep they go in the ketamine experience. But that question, IV versus IM, that's now being studied. What's the time course of these ketamine treatments, the IV versus IM? I think that's an interesting thing to discuss. The classic protocol with intravenous ketamine is to drip it in a vein over 40 minutes, which means that patients are in a dissociative state for maybe 40 to 45 minutes, roughly. With the IM, intramuscular, that's typically done uh, in injection in the deltoid muscle, which is the upper arm. That is a very different kind of onset. Within four to six minutes, people are rapidly launching into the ketamine matrix. And then people are usually deeply in it for, say, 15 to 17 minutes. And then the next 30 to 35 minutes, they're coming out of it. As my partner, who also does a lot of ketamine treatment, says, when you do intravenous, it's like being lowered into the pool. When you do intramuscular, we're throwing you into the pool. Question six, what are the side effects and risks of ketamine? Well, really with ketamine, at least uh, at the doses that we use in mental health, we see three main side effects. Number one, ketamine definitely increases blood pressure, which is not a problem unless you have hypertension. And for patients with hypertension, that typically can be managed. We monitor blood pressure throughout IV or IM ketamine. But that is an important thing to recognize, and we screen people carefully. Number two, and this is an interesting feature of ketamine, the ketamine experience is a wild ride, and it can cause severe nausea and motion sickness for people who are prone to motion sickness, which is not a problem if you're someone who can ride in the back of the car, ride in a roller coaster and not get sick. But if you are someone prone to motion sickness, you have to take some kind of motion sickness medication before, like on Dancitron or scopolamine. The third common side effect or issue with ketamine is anxiety or even fear. In the first few minutes, the ketamine's coming on when your body's dissolving, when your ego's dissolving, it can be pretty disturbing, particularly for people who don't have much experience with psychedelics. And what we've found and what many other docs have found is that using eye shades and music makes that transition much more manageable. It's almost as if the music provides the 
luge run or the bobsled run for the whooshing power of ketamine. And without music, the motion and the power and the strangeness of ketamine just can feel too much. And early on, two to three years ago, I had a few people that I did ketamine treatments on that didn't want music, and I found out the hard way that that was not a good idea. It was really scary. And I think, again, it just felt like, if you can imagine, rocketing down a mountain in a bobsled with no run, whereas the music provides sort of a container and a direction and guides the experience. Question number seven, who should not do ketamine? Well, two people come to mind, two kinds of people come to mind. Number one, if you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, uncontrolled hypertension, you definitely should not do ketamine because ketamine, while it raises everyone's blood pressure, for folks with hypertension, it can be very dramatic. And as I said, I and other docs who use ketamine, excuse me, to treat depression, we monitor that closely and screen people out. But that would be potentially a contraindication. The second big contraindication is if you have a primary psychotic illness like schizophrenia, a drug-induced, substance-induced psychotic disorder, because ketamine has the possibility of exacerbating or triggering psychosis if you have a primary psychosis going on. To sum up, I started thinking a couple years ago when I started using ketamine that it would be a last resort, something for suicidal or potentially hospital-bound patients. But over the last two years, it's become increasingly obvious that there's a whole range of people who have not responded to other depression treatments for whom ketamine can be a safe and very effective treatment. When we look at the medications that have come on the market in the last 20 years, many of them are pretty effective, but they can have some really awful side effects. And as I just mentioned a couple minutes ago, other than the blood pressure and the motion sickness issue and the anxiety at onset of dissociation, ketamine is actually incredibly well-tolerated and safe. How effective is ketamine? The data that we have so far suggests that for medication or treatment-resistant depression, ketamine is at least as effective as ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which is amazing because for many, many years, ECT has been the gold standard for severe treatment-resistant depression. But now we have something that seems much safer and actually faster acting. If you have other ketamine questions or would like to share some of your own experiences with us, you can email us through our website, the Back from the Abyss website, bftapodcast.com. And I imagine that we'll be revisiting ketamine in a future episode soon. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes, as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound, and thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.